podcast where we have transformative conversations about the intersection of education and social justice. I'm your host, Brittany Carey, and today I have a beautiful conversation with fellow education advocate, Cynthia Lopez. Cynthia obtained her master's in applied behavioral analysis and has dedicated her adult life to being an agent of change by working with and advocating for individuals through different channels, including schools, homes, and clinical settings. While she enjoys working with all age groups, she excels working with the younger age population and is passionate about helping her clients reach their full potentials and live fulfilling lives. During the conversation, we discuss the importance of inclusive classrooms where all students are able to show up as their full and authentic selves. We talk about supporting the classroom community as well as how we reimagine education to be more inclusive and equitable. Let's get into the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited. Today I have Cynthia with me. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to have you here. Um, The first question I always ask my guests is to tell me a little bit about who or what inspired you to explore a career in education. I know your background is specific to early childhood as well. So why education and why early childhood? Yeah, like that's a very long, my answer is very long, so I'm going to try to compact it. I think it was more a series of all the teachers I didn't like and like what I didn't Mm. see that kind of encouraged me um, to go forth. I had one teacher in high school who kind of changed it around. Um, But I think, yeah, it was more like, this cannot continue for the future generations. We need to go somewhere. I wanted to go like high school English in the beginning, but then going down the line, I'm like, no, 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 this is not early enough. We have to catch it, you know? We have to catch these little brains and we have to mold them um, before we actually, you know, they're out in the world. By high school, they're already out there. They're already formed. They're kind of exploring college and what do I want to be in the future? So, um, yeah, <laughs> then I decided to go towards preschool, like 18 months and older. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I initially, when I was going into education, I wanted to do elementary level uh, kindergarten, first through third grade. Like, I, I agree. I wanted to do like the small, the youth. Like, I just wanted to be with the kiddos. Um, and then when I started in early childhood, like just that first day in that classroom, I was like, oh, I like this. <laughs> This is fun. Yeah. It's it's a lot of work and I know some people look at it like high school people look at it and they're like, I don't know how you do that every day with such young children and I'm like, I don't know how you work with high school students. So okay. we're on the same level. Okay, because I'm like, how do I even the lingo? Girl, I'm one of those people. I'm Googling what do these definitions mean? So um yeah, I don't know if I would be able to relate to them. As much as I would like a little kid, which is kind of funny to say, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny. I don't know. I just, I I vibe with the young kiddos. Like, I don't know. We'll just be in the classroom. We'll have conversations at circle time. I'm like, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a solid point, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they just hit you with like the real facts. (laughs) You just have to, yeah, you're right. You have to give it to them. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And so your experience with early childhood started um, kind of in the classroom specifically, or how did that begin? So it's very, it's funny. I was around 19 years old and I was just looking for a job, any old job. And my mom said that she found this place. It was uh, for a preschool. It was preschool, but it also had UPK. Um, It's back in New York, so I don't know if it's the same thing here in California, so universal pre-K. We just started that within the last two years, and so does that, is that also uh, TK, or is that, um, is it, what does that look like? So many things change. Um, (laughs) So it was definitely from three to five. Is that also TK? Yeah, here in California, TK is now, it was... It used to be more complicated, so it was like your ha- your birthday had to be within like o- between August to I think like December second. Is that that group of kids is what classified for TK? And now we've just expanded it so that TK is now all four year olds. 
are eligible for TK, that like transitional kindergarten. Nice. Um, and it goes through school district. So it's, you know, free care for students and families. Um, and then the umbrella is UPK here. So it, it encapsulates Got preschool, it. TK, and kind of that kindergarten education. So it's kind of the umbrella of it. And then you have the specifics of it, which is just a very interesting way of breaking it down. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that it did fall under that umbrella. Um, and then I didn't know that it was um, kind of like an integrated school. So you have self-contained classrooms, which is for... Sorry. It's primarily for children with autism. They're on the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. And they just need extra resources. So they... Because they need special attention, they have to be in smaller classes. So the most mm -hmm. kids that you'll find will be like eight okay. with maybe like five adults. Mm -hmm. So most kids would have like one adult for themselves kind of situation. Okay. And then they have different classrooms that, you know, the higher the skill sets go, then they can move on to different classrooms. So eventually mm -hmm. they get to the UPK classroom, which exactly. is integrated. Um and so it started off as a job, and then it ended up that I was really, really good at it. <laughs> um, and I kind of just stayed, you know? I loved it. <laughs> I didn't choose it. It chose me, Brittany. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, it does kind of feel like that's how it is sometimes. I, I also just took my first preschool teaching job is. Like, oh, I'd want to do something different. And I've been working in bars and restaurants and coffee shops and yeah. I'm still going to school and I'm exhausted. So I just want something a little bit different. And my first day in that classroom, it was a hot mess. It was, it was a whole hot mess. Always. But it was so fun. <laughs> and I loved it. And I went back home and I was like, I can't wait to learn more about this. And I can't wait to do the thing. Um, and yeah, it was, yeah, it, it chooses you sometimes. <laughs> it does. I agree. I was enthralled with everything that I saw. Um, and one thing, one way that I knew that it was for me is that every time they were like, okay, we're doing a staff training. I wasn't like, ugh. I was like, oh yeah, what are we going to learn about ABA and just early childhood development mm -hmm. in general today? So that was good. And then I went to college for it and here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I, lo I like, love the idea of working in an inclusive classroom. And I know there's a lot of challenges that come with that in making sure that the classroom is inclusive for, for all the needs and, and all of the, the things going on. Um, because it can be challenging as an educator in those classrooms because you have just students with varying degrees of needs, varying you know sensory exactly. processes that they need, and you just need to be attuned to each one of your students as the individual that they are. Exactly. Um, and so it can be really tricky. And I know that the mentality sometimes of it is that, oh, teachers don't want to have you know students with autism, or they don't want to have students with special needs in their classroom, which isn't the case at all. I love having, you know, students with special needs in my classroom. I think it adds a beautiful diversity to the thought process of the classroom. And just, it's just, they, they bring such a beautiful essence to the classroom. Like, why would I not want that? But I do know that in my training as an early childhood educator, I didn't get a whole lot of training on how to best, like the best practices of working with this population. And so on my end, it was, I'm stressed out because I don't think I'm supporting you the way that I would love to be supporting you and I don't yes. have the resources to do this. But it's like, I cannot support you because I myself am not being properly supported to mm -hmm. then do my job. And it really, such a good point that you're talking, like that you're talking about. It's so much a throw you to the wolves kind of profession mm -hmm. because it's hard. It's hard. Turnover rates, you know, are high in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um yes definitely not for the week but definitely very rewarding mm -hmm. um just to see those little minds grow every day yes yes to see the minds grow and to see just how they interact with each other how they develop and just being a part of that journey and being a part of 
they're they're finding that love for learning and finding that love for being in school and education and being a part of that so early in their journey is yeah. such an incredible privilege and it's a joy. Um, but like we said, it doesn't come with without its challenges and it is kind of a profession that we study a lot of the philosophy. So, you know, in a lot of my child development classes, we learned a lot about philosophy, which is great. I still am a big supporter about learning about the philosophy of young children and learning about how they develop and learning all these different stages of life very important. And we do do some observations in the classroom, but your first day is kind of just, okay, go do the thing now. <laughs> like you are now the teacher, enjoy mm -hmm. your life, go do it. And there's a lot of learning kind of on the job <laughs> that yeah. we have to do. Um, yeah. And, you know, luckily if you have more veteran teachers there who, you know, you can look up to and admire and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to follow what you do and hopefully I'll get to that stage. But unfortunately, not a lot of people have that because, um, as you said, the turnover rates are incredibly high for early childhood just because it doesn't particularly pay amazing and the workload is intense. And <laughs> you have a lot of students. So. So. And it, you're lucky if you have a veteran teacher mm -hmm. there, like a very well-seasoned teacher, like you said. And I think even that within itself has its own little issues because... I went to a seminar once and the lady speaking, she was like, there are just some teachers that I call them, you're done. Like they have just been there for so long and they're kind of just waiting for retirement that you, they have lost their spark. Either they never had it or they lost it a long time ago. And so it can be very dangerous because when you're coming into the settings with those kind of seasoned teachers, you're kind of learning the negative Mm -hmm. from them as well because that's what you see so that's what you emulate and you must be like oh well this must be the right way to do it because that's what they're doing right mm -hmm. but then when you leave that place and you're taking all of those things learned with you as well so mm -hmm. it's very tricky it is, it's it very is so tricky. tricky but also so many good teachers out there just yes. give them <laughs> acknowledgement there's so many teachers i totally understand like the burdens you know that these things might happen but mm -hmm. that is a reality of the fact it it really is and you know like again the, the profession there's a really high turnover rate and a really high burnout rate um again there's just a lot going on in the classrooms and while it is so rewarding and amazing you have a lot of pressure depending on the school that you're at and you know yeah. working at either a head start or a state funded school there's a lot more kind of just because they're getting funding from the government there's so many extra things in addition to being a classroom teacher that are required of you that you have to right. do um and then you also want to keep learning and doing and learning all the best practices because that's the beautiful thing about a field that works with people is that we are constantly learning about best practices and our best practices right. are constantly changing and so that means that in order for us to be the best educators that we can be we also have to keep learning and keep doing that professional development and keep doing all these extra things but that's then another layer on top of the already high you know mountain of things that Correct. as educators <laughs> in the classroom we're expected to do <laughs> yes yeah, so, so many things it's like they expect teachers to do so many things that are outside their scope. Like, honestly, like mm -hmm. there's just so many things that are outside of their scope. They have to take all this workload with them, you know, mm -hmm. after hours, they have to spend their own money mm -hmm. um, just to provide a decent education to mm -hmm. kids. And they're always fighting against the curriculum mm -hmm. because once you find something that works, things change, <laughs> things yep. change over and over again. Um, but I think this is why I've geared more now towards, um, maybe teaching future teachers. Mm -hmm. I think like I start, I was like, go backwards, start at the kids. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel like now I'm like, go more backwards, start with the teachers. Mm -hmm. So that way when they go in, they kind of have. They know how to build a rapport with the kids. They know how to come in with like that fun, good, ready to do mm -hmm. attitude, the things that the kids need to see in order yes. to want to engage. Yeah. I think that that <laughs> like, let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. I think some of 
outside of my social justice classes, I think some of the best classes that I I took in college were my child development classes because those were often educators who had been in the field and uh, were still passionate about it and also had that same mentality of like, I want students to have the best the best quality and the highest quality of care possible. And that comes from the adult in the classroom. Yeah. Um, I, I remember uh, I had this like creative art class and my professor for that class was so amazing. I still think about her all the time because she was just such a brilliant educator. And she had us do an activity one day in the classroom where we just had to do like some sort of art activity. And she was like, okay, start your art activity. And we were like, okay, cool. And at some point she was like, okay, we're done. Stop. Like we're, we're, the activity's over, just clean up and go. And we were like, but we're not, but we're not done. <laughs> and she's like, nope, it's, it's, you're done now. Like, let's pick it up. And so we did. And we were like, okay. And she was like, how did that feel? And I was like, it didn't feel great. <laughs> and she's like, that's kind of what we do to students sometimes when we're on our own timetable and we're on our own schedule, like mentally, we kind of disrupt their creative processes when we just abruptly change things or abruptly like stop things. And it really, it made me more intentional in the classroom with, yeah. with their, with the time schedules, right? Like I want to make sure that they know that I value your creative space and I value the, the art that you're creating. And I want you to be able to do that in a space that makes sense for you. And like, it really shifted my mindset in a lot of ways. And it made me a better teacher. The more that I learn about teaching and the more that I learn about best practices, I become a better teacher through that. And it's just an amazing feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I agree. I 1000% agree. Um, I'm lucky enough to have had similar professors um, in, you know, like my college career as well, mm -hmm. but there's two that I will always um, remember. I don't know. It's just they were so enwrapped in what they were doing that it also made me want to be focused. And I remember learning about the whole child, like just between mm -hmm. these two classes, they would just always talk about the whole child and what does that mean and how we can integrate that into our classrooms. Um, and I think that what you were mentioning there, that's part of the whole child, right? A mm -hmm. child who is currently engaged with their activity, their art, you know, that's mm -hmm. like a really big part of them. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe they need some kind of warning before mm -hmm. our time is over. That is just incorporating everything into your lesson, you know, and it's yeah. doable. So, yay for teacher. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, um, <laughs> I just wish that uh, what I learned in college and then what I saw applied in different mm -hmm. schools were not necessarily matching up. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. things that I was taught to value, that they're like really important, mm -hmm. like where's the bridge? <laughs> yeah. How are we connecting this into the classrooms? Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Because that reminds me of the second school that I worked at, and that was my first school, I was more of like an assistant in the classroom. And then the second school, I was more of a co-teacher, yeah. um, but I had a more veteran teacher working with me. So she was mostly like the actual teacher, like they listened to her more, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just baby teacher here. Um, and <laughs> I remember some of the practices and, you know, I was still going through my child development courses too. So I was still really early in my child development courses. And so I remember when I was in the classroom and seeing some of these, these interactions that we had, and I was in like a three-year-old classroom and, you know, like we would have the kids have to sit at the tables and they were doing like worksheets and I would feel really bad because I was kind of following what my teacher, my co-teacher was doing. And, you know, she was just very like, we're sitting down, we're doing this, like this is the expectation. Like you can't get up from your chair. Like you're not allowed to be in that area. Like we're all sitting down and we're all doing this right now. And that was a teaching model that kind of has, has seeped down from the kindergarten teaching model, right? It's, it's very academic, it's very rigid. Um, and I think we know that developmentally appropriate practice tells us that, yeah, we can't expect, you know, all three-year-olds to be able to sit at a table for a prolonged period of time and to work on one single activity. Um, we know that that's just not developmentally appropriate practice. and they're not going to do it and you're you as a teacher are just going to be wasting a lot of your time kind of fighting with them to get yeah. them to do a thing 
where it's like, oh, well, we know that best practice is now. Maybe one, we don't do worksheets. <laughs> we just put the, put the worksheets down. <laughs> okay, literally. <laughs> step one. Um, and step two, maybe there's alternative ways that they can do an activity. So maybe they don't have to sit down. Maybe they can stand up. Maybe they can take their activity to the circle time rug. Maybe there's different ways that they can do it. And also I've learned through my teaching practice and just, you know, the, the longer that I became a teacher, I was just kind of forging my own, like what is my own pedagogy in the classroom? I learned that it's very important to be intentional. So what is my intention with this activity? Why am I presenting it to them? Right. And when I go, when I approach it in that way, that means that I can look at all of my children as these individuals and I can individualize that for each of them. So I know that some of my students, if I put it at the, the table and expect them to do it, they're not going to engage with it. They're not going to want to do it. But if I present it a slightly different way, they might actually do it and they might actually be I, focused on it <laughs> for a while. 1000 percent. Okay. So I like how you phrase that because it brought me literally to what I do. So my master's is in applied behavioral analysis, mm -hmm. um, ABA for short. And it's essentially, it used peer reviewed and scientific based methodology mm -hmm. to then help shape, modify social behaviors. Um, and then it's like, well, what's socially acceptable behaviors? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's unique. It's unique to each person. What is socially acceptable in your house might be different from my house, might be different from, you know, someone else's house. Um, and then also our learning styles, especially because with autism, it's a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So not everyone is the same. Um, and my job, before COVID, I would go in their homes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After COVID, they would have to come into the clinic. And so it was kind of this thing of like, these are the things we have to do. Let's say you and I have the same goals. Um, I don't know, give me a goal, verbal, something verbal, right? We're gonna work on our verbal um, skills. What I present to you, what might motivate you what gets you interested would be totally different than another client of mine. Mm -hmm. The goal might be the same because, you know, age-wise, developmental, you're trying to get to the same place. But when I'm going to, you know, if I go to one culture mm -hmm. and then I go to another house and then they're another culture, like I can have a client from India and then I'll have a client that's from like Mexico and then it's totally different then you still have to learn how to apply these things and still get the result and I'm not gonna do the same thing because it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense even like words that are used like I'll try to pick up different words from their language you know I don't know the whole language but at least different things that recognize them so now when they see me they also think of mom like mm -hmm. I listen to my mom, I should listen to her too. She's kind of like doing the same thing that we're doing over here. Mm -hmm. So it is It is really, we're trained to kind of focus on these little details so that we can connect to them. Mm -hmm. um, which is why when I'm scared to go back to a bigger classroom, honestly, um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of scared to go back to an integrated classroom because I feel like that's not the focus. And I would kind of get lost in like the details of it all yeah. Because I would want to do like, you know, just gear towards doing certain things. Mm -hmm. But then in an integrated classroom, it's just kind of shoved under one umbrella, like we were talking mm -hmm. before. So then things start getting lost in the cracks. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's such an important like aspect of it, because I know I worked in an integrated classroom. And so we would have different types of therapists come in. So it might be an ABA therapist or it might be occupational or speech therapist, right? So it was a school, but it was also connected to the clinic. So, you know, yeah. sometimes the speech therapist would come in, like just grab them, or sometimes the ABA therapist would come over and just work within the classroom uh, with that particular student. And I always tried to make it a point to really connect with the ABA person that was coming into the classroom and say, okay, what are you working on and how can I support that? Or how can we integrate that into the classroom? Because it really should be a working relationship between these two fields. Because again, Agreed. 
you know, I do a lot of, I did a lot of studying on the development of the child, which is great, but most of it is centered around neurotypical development. You know, we learn a little bit about, you know, the, you know, neurodivergence, but mostly most of our, our training is neurotypical students. And so right. I have this other person whose training is specified to <laughs> the neurodivergent student. And so with our powers combined, <laughs> right, we can make a really great community and a really great system in which this, the student is being supported. And I also want to make sure that obviously the goal isn't to eliminate who they are as a person, right? We're not trying to say that your autism makes you bad or wrong. That's not it at all. We want to make it so that you can integrate into the classroom and be comfortable and have your needs right. met and make sure that you are getting a, a educational experience that is equal to your peers, right? So, and I can't do that if I'm not working with the specialist in the room, right? No, absolutely. Equity. <laughs> Equity. <laughs> like you have, to, I mean, if that means that the teacher has to work just a little bit harder to make that connection, but then to be able to provide the resources for the student, well, then that's what should be done to kind of, get everyone on the same page, mm -hmm. especially, you know, you use neurotypical mm -hmm. and neurodivergent. I feel like I hate the term neurotypical because what is that even? Nobody, right. nobody even falls into that category anymore. And so, and so it confuses me because we're still using all the curriculum, the methods, everything that we learned from like the 1800s, I mean, I'm exaggerating, you know, but um, it just doesn't apply mm -hmm. any longer. Even emotional literacy, you know, yeah. like 20 years ago, it was barely even a thing. You would get made fun of for having any kind of emotions other than anger and happiness. Mm -hmm. And so now it just has to be different. <laughs> I, I just, it pains me because I don't have, like, here is the sure, mm -hmm. sure, safe, new, you know, thing that we can do here to change it all. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I get stuck on my words. But I I do know that it's, something's got to change, Brittany. <laughs> I, I agree 100%. And I think, I think that comes from forging these really authentic partnerships. Again, you have your partnership, you're, you're making a classroom community. And yeah. part of that is, you know, the community with the students. And part of that is making sure that you have teachers who have all the adequate resources to ensure that their students are still getting that high quality of care. And so whether well, that's partnering with, you know, therapists or that's partnering with social workers or whatever it is that you're partnering with, it's just making sure that all the resources and all of the the community are actually working together towards this common goal and also that we are listening to those who are you know part of the different communities right so we have you know adults with autism and they have been very vocal about like what's working and what doesn't work and what they right. need and what's helpful and so by listening to what the population is actually telling us what is helpful and what works are great pathways for us to start you know making those those very very important changes that need to be made because I agree, you know, I remember having a conversation with someone on the phone one day and she was talking about her integrated classroom and she was like, yeah, my son's in an integrated classroom. So he goes to classroom with, you know, children with autism and all other, you know, different types of neurodivergence. And she was like, but my son doesn't even know that the other kids are autistic. Like that's how integrated it is. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's not. <laughs> actually <laughs> uh, because we can't ignore that this is a part of their lived experience we can't ignore like there's nothing wrong with them having autism and we don't need yeah. to, we, we can label that and we can let them know like yeah we're in a classroom and we have students with autism we have students with ADHD we like it's just a part of the way that they exist in the world and that's okay and they might exist in the world a little bit different than you do and that's not bad or wrong right they just see the world in a very different way and we don't need to ignore that in the classroom. I think that causes yeah. more harm, right? And it causes more alienation in the classroom of, oh, that person's not like us, so we're not gonna play with that person or, um, you know, so-and-so is being really loud right now. So like, they must be a bad kid. And it's like, they're not a bad kid. They're just expressing right. themselves. <laughs> right. right. We're all gonna express ourselves in different ways and we are we are learning, 
<laughs> how to be a part of a community. And like, that is our role as the adults in the classroom, right? Like they are the students, they are the young person in the classroom. And when we really look at it, they haven't been in the world for that long. So, <laughs> and being a human is hard. So, <laughs> Very. <laughs> <Can't> confirm. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Been humaning for a long time now. It's hard. Yeah. Um, and so they're learning. And so that's part of our role in that classroom is to give them those tools as they're learning and give them, you know, look into our emotional toolkit. That's most social, emotional learning and development is so key. And you're, you're right. Back in the, you know, 60s, we weren't talking about this. There were like PSAs coming out in the 80s saying like, it's okay to hug your child. And I'm like, we needed. We needed to say that. <laughs> that was a thing Honestly, that needed to be said. It's ten o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? Why are your kids not in bed, ma'am? <laughs> like what? <laughs> it's very different um, yeah. back in the day than it is now. <laughs> yes, it, it's very different, and the best practices change and shift. And again, the more that we just listen, we take, we just approach it with curiosity, and we just ask questions and. You know, we might make mistakes along the way. I think there have been, even in ABA, I think there's been mistakes along the way, but the best practices are constantly changing. And so as we're listening to more people in the community saying, hey, this didn't work for me. It's like, okay, well, let's take a step back and look at how can we use this tool that you said is, you know, peer reviewed and it's yeah. research and it's got, you know, a, you know, a big background. So how can we continue to look at this tool? But again, it was developed back in the day and the things that worked back in the day aren't working today. Right. right. And like, how are we also kind of, as you mentioned before, when you were going into the, into the homes and like, you know, looking at each family is going to be different and their cultures are different. Right. So how do we also incorporate a big aspect of the way they exist in the world, like their culture, their language, that can also be a part of it. It can, it can seamlessly like integrate into this process. Like we don't have to ignore these really big parts of people for the sake right. of moving something along, right? <laughs> and it just seems like curriculum, education, it definitely is geared towards a certain population and everyone else just kind of has to make themselves yep. fit into the mold of just what it is, but honestly mm -hmm. does not apply <laughs> to yeah. um, more than half of us. Mm -hmm. And it's very just I'm looking for the right word <laughs> I feel okay I'm sorry I feel like I'm speaking kind of like in a negative connotation about education or and you know and I don't want to make it seem like that there's so much good here and there's so much work you know to be done and when it's done right like the effects of it are beautiful but it's also just like where can we take this like we have information where can we take this to whom do we give this information so they can take it and run with it and do the changes that we need to see like i feel like all that goes into policy mm -hmm. it goes into like you have to be educated to then educate others mm -hmm. so to speak and it's very hard <laughs> for for example i came from inner city I'm from Brooklyn, Queens, New York. You know what I mean? I went to a high school that was overpopulated by 2,000 kids. It was a zoned school. It was only supposed to be for like 3,000 max. There were 5,000 kids there. Wow. Um, you know? So yeah. it's like it's very hard to go from that environment to then be able to work yourself up to be a lobbyist or to go talk to the right kind of people that will get these into place. But it's like we know it we see it we've been through it but then the people who are making the policy the people who do the lobbying who mm -hmm. do all of that they have never been a day in our shoes so how do they know mm -hmm. um what are the right moves to make and how yes. do we get that information to them yes i i feel that and i know within the advocacy space especially in education there's a lot of dialogue of you know because I, I know for both of us, we've kind of taken a step back from being actively in, you know, the classroom, yeah. but still in, you know, still working towards education and still passionate about education. And so the dialogue recently has been, well, how can you advocate for education if you're not in the classroom? Like, mm 
how how are you how can you do that and really that answer is it's it's so hard to do that while you're actively in it because when you're in it you're almost just kind of in survival mode like things are just kind of going and your you have your focus is your classroom and there's so many things that you're focusing on that to then on top of that to also you know go attend the school board meetings and go be active in the community and do all those things and also have a social life and also have a family you're gonna burn yourself out it's like you just have to be some sort of robot in order to be able to do those all of those things um and you know people do it and more power to them I personally can't, so it, it won't be me, but it won't be me, it won't be, honestly. <laughs> I value my mental sanity way more, but it's, it's hard to do those things. And I know that when I take that step back, because I've, I've been in education and I took a step back and then I kind of went back in the classroom and I took a step back. And each time that I have stepped back and I've come back, I've come back way stronger and I've come back more passionate about it and I have I can see the issues more clearly now that I've taken that step back I took a little break I went and worked with nonprofits for a while and I just did my own thing for a little bit and every time I step back into education I feel like okay I'm ready and I'm more passionate and I have a lot more drive and so yes we sometimes I think we complain about the things that we love the most sometimes because we know it can be better. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Like you see the potential. I know we can get it together. Yeah. Let's let's do this. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly like I know the potential of what education, especially early education, early childhood education. I know the potential and I know we've been in the classrooms and we've experienced those those really amazing great days where at the end of it you're like i made a difference like i did something today like yes i'm going home there's paint and other questionable materials on my clothes right now i'm exhausted my hair is a mess but i feel good about the work that i did today and those moments make it all worth it right those those really meaningful and impactful moments that you have with students or you have with their families it makes it all 100 percent worth it Absolutely. Every child deserves this. Absolutely. Everybody. Mm Ma'am, I had somebody write me a letter once. Um, I stopped working with a client, and the mom told me in the letter that the only reason her daughter can tell her, I love you, mom, right now was because Mm -hmm. of me. And when she wrote that, girl, I bawled for for like five minutes because it was so fulfilling. Like, my paycheck was not very fulfilling. But that letter to my heart was everything. And it honestly is just amazing to see the connections being made. And it's like, yeah, I I helped. (laughs) I helped with that. (laughs) Yes, providing like the the work that it helps with the families even because again, no one has no one has a child with the, you know, expectation that their child is going to have exceptional needs, right? This is, you know, it happens. And again, there's nothing wrong with this child. It's not a bad child. It's just a child who's navigating the world a different way. And the world is built to be navigated in a very specific type of way, right? And so when you are outside of that realm of like this very specific line that you're supposed to be in, it's really hard. And, you know, our goal, I think, is to really offer those support and and that help, especially to those families who also aren't prepared to deal (laughs) with these things, you know, like we study child development, we study so many things. And yet, I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but like, I don't even think I think I'm prepared for that. (laughs) And I know a lot about how children develop. It's, listen, I tell parents all the time, because, you know, I've encountered so many different people, so many Mm -hmm. different kinds of parents. And sometimes it's like guilt. Sometimes it's, I hate to call it ignorance, but sometimes I've had people be like, when is my child going to be better? When are they going to get better? You know, when are they going to get over this specific situation that we're tackling at the moment? And it's like, what am I going to say? There's nothing to be, there's nothing to get better from. That's number one. There's improvements to be made, Mm -hmm. but we all have to make improvements. It's, it just depends where we're at. So that's what we're going to work with. You know what I mean? And it's very, but I tell people is just 
everyone give yourself grace because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like you said, I have a daughter now. She's one year old. When I was pregnant with her, I was never prepared for like, yeah, she's going to be, you know, neurodivergent. She mm-hmm. hasn't had any diagnosis, but I'm just saying like from a parent's point of view, like you said, you want a healthy baby. You're just praying mm-hmm. for, you know, my baby to be healthy, to come to life. And we're just going to figure it out from there. Right. And no parent expects when they're here with a the diagnosis, it's almost like a death of the image of the child that they had in their head. And so they go through that grief process. You know what I mean? It's like the five stage. I don't know them all like from memory, but there are like the five stages of grief and you have to go through all that. And people stay stuck. People stay stuck. And a lot of the times they are not provided with the resources of how to overcome their own emotional, um, just the lack of their emotional intelligence to then be able to really provide with their child. And a lot of the times it's hard working 12 hours a day, working two, you know, two jobs. Sometimes they're single parent. There's a lot going mm-hmm. on here. So I agree, like, parents need education. Yes. Teachers need education. Just everyone yes. kind of needs to work together because it's not just the teacher's job. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, I feel like it's primarily the parent's job. But it's not just <laughs> the parent's job as well, right? Because you're working together as a community. So... At that point, it's like it takes a village kind of thing. It does. It really does. It takes it takes a village and we're building a community and the more that we can work together. And I think it makes sense when we see parents who are stuck, right? Again, no one expects this to happen and nobody anticipates these things. And so exactly what you said, there's kind of like that death of the image of the child. And having compassion and empathy goes such a yeah. long way because if... I'm the teacher and I am just constantly feuding with this parent because obviously I know from the education standpoint, I know that if we get early interventions, that's going to be the most helpful for that child and for that family. And we know how how much early intervention helps and supports that. Um, and as an educator, I know that there is nothing wrong with this diagnosis, that I have seen students be just, just as successful, if not more successful, regardless of their diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's not, you know, like, it's not a sentence. It's not, you know, your child's never going to succeed. They're never going to do X, Y, Z. Like, even like, oh, my child's never going to talk. And like, you know, maybe they won't talk in the way that you think that they're going to talk to you, but they will communicate. They'll communicate. (laughs) Oh, girl, they will communicate. They will communicate. Absolutely. We've got to shift our thinking a little bit about what that means and what that looks like, but they're very communicative. They're communicating all the time. We just got to listen. Exactly. (laughs) But having that compassion goes a long way, right? Because hopefully most of the time that parent will come to terms with it and they will come and they will meet us halfway. Right. But we do as on the other side, again, me not being a parent, I've never had to experience that. I've never had to go through that. And I can't imagine that that is an easy situation to reckon with and to have to exactly. change everything in, you know, like, like a snap to change everything and just kind of, you know, go a different direction. That can't be easy. And that, that can't be something that, you know, is, is smooth for everybody and every family. Right. But I, as an educator can only have the utmost just faith and belief that they will get there. And I can, all I can do is be supportive. And all I can do is make sure that they have the resources available to them so that when they are ready, that here you go. <laughs> like resources yeah, are here. Got absolutely. You. Like, no here, you'll get there when you get there. Like your story is your story. You know, obviously I would like you to get there faster. <laughs> Sometimes girl is like, yes. Because <laughs> if we do, but you know, again, having that compassion and empathy and just understanding that each family is going through their own thing that and as professionals it's absolutely Mm -hmm. our job like the parents can't see it they're too close Mm -hmm. to the situation that's their child you know what i mean and i think it's wonderful that as the professionals we can come in we see the light maybe Mm -hmm. the parents might not see it just yet but we see it and we nourish that and we foster that and then we can go back to the parents and be like these are all the things that they're into. You can use these things to then connect with your child. And then you kind of see that connection growing. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> I love that. It's like one of my favorite things to do. 
Um, sorry, I'm like on a tangent. I was watching. Have you heard Abbott Elementary, the show? I love I love it. Okay. I only watched the first season, but I'm I love it. <laughs> So I love it because it. I feel like it goes very hand in hand with everything mm-hmm. that we're talking about in just like an underserved school where the teachers are really trying their hardest to just mm-hmm. get day, you know, day to day and really provide the best they can for their students. But there was one episode in specific where a child was kind of calling out and very hyper and trying to be funny and they loved Bluey. And in the beginning, the teacher was getting just very aggravated and they're like, ah, go to the principal's office, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then after, they just took pictures of Bluey and they put it on the board with whatever the lesson was. And he's like, I think Bluey knows, you know, and then it got the kid engaged and then the kids started participating. And I was like, bingo. (laughs) That's it. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> that is working in the whole yeah. child into your lesson <laughs> to kind of get them engaged. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up. As, I love that. And it's as simple as that. It reminds me of something I did in my classroom once. You know, we would do circle time. And, you know, circle time is a really great way to introduce literature to young children and introduce just how do we talk about books and dialogue. And it's just such a great time for you know as an educator i'm like all right circle time that's this is amazing this is the juicy spot right yeah it really it really is but again modulating it and individualizing our instruction because you know sitting down in a circle for you know whatever length of time might not be accessible for every student right and so you know all of my students always had the opportunity to if you didn't want to sit in the circle that's totally fine you do not have to sit in the circle you can still engage like you can still be listening to the book and be in the book area you can still yeah. be listening to the book and having a conversation and be, you know, sitting at the table. Like you don't have to do exactly what everyone else is doing. But I had one kid who just did, like every time I brought out a book, like could not care less about this book. Just was like, nah, I'm, I'm not down for this. Don't want, I don't want what you're trying to sell me. <laughs> I see you and I don't want it. <laughs> but I was like, all right, homie. Okay. Um, and so I would go to the library every week and I would pick up, you know, books for the kids. So books for circle time. And then I'd also pick up like just some like, nonfiction, just like picture books, you know, so it'd be like, here's a book about China, and you can kind of look through the pictures. Um, so I always get kind of nonfiction books for the kids, too, um, to look at before we started circle time. And one time I brought in a book about Spider-Man, because this kid loved, he loved Spider-Man. He nice. like, loved it. All He loved all superheroes, but Spider, like, he would be on the playground, like, I'm Spider-Man. This kid loves Spider-Man. And so what I did is I picked up this comic book about Spider-Man and I just I didn't say anything I just put it on the circle time rug and I just let it be and this was the first time that that child sat down at the circle time rug and he was looking at it and he was telling all his friends about it, like this is Spider-Man and this is Aww. other characters and then this, and he's going all through it and after that he sat for the entire circle time he was he was just he was engaged he was ready he was like yeah no this this is i want to be here he was talking to everybody like he was having a grand old time i and love that he kept coming back to the circle time i didn't even have to ask it was like, okay cool we're, we're sitting okay cool like i love it good for you yes Brittany. it's literally just that one action of just putting the book down not even forcing it you got him to engage socially mm-hmm. you got him to engage cognitively mm-hmm. you got him to practice sitting you rewarded him and so now he found rewards in this activity that he did not like and then he came back for more reinforcements in the future literally that's just the top of my head four things <laughs> right there that i can think of i'm sure if i think about it longer i'll come up with more but but one simple little action so again, yeah. it's like, just go that extra little step and we'll yeah. get so much more in return from these kids. We will, we will. Like he found, he's like, oh wait, I can find books that are interesting to me. We got we got books out there with Spider-Man in it. Okay, I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear a little bit about what you're selling here about these books. <laughs> it's so fun. Okay, so back to like why did I want to be an educator I I really think it is a series of just like negative experiment experiences I'm sorry like negative experiences that I'm like this cannot I cannot stand for this we're gonna have to fix this because when you said circle time I also thought of a circle time story Mm -hmm. and it was like 
everyone had just again different skill sets and so while some kids loved circle times and can sit for the whole 15 minutes one kid wouldn't even sit for five seconds another kid could probably sit for like maybe two or three depending on what we're doing but then you know and so aba revolves around reinforcements so we want to supply as much positive reinforcements into different areas so that way the behavior will continue the thing is that a lot of the times we're using like toys or snacks because those are things that kids can relate to but also Mm -hmm. too many snack too much snacking can be unhealthy um toys could be distracting for the other kids because then it's like why does this kid get a toy you know they don't understand why one might get something and then somebody else cannot yet and so my solution was to start singing Because kids love music. If it's one thing you're struggling, put on some music. These kids will always start engaging in that. Mm -hmm. And so I I was singing, and we're doing the storybook, and everybody was just sitting. They were quiet. Nobody had to get fed any snacks. Mm -hmm. Nobody needed toys. Like, the singing was the reward in itself. But then my supervisor came, and he was like, yeah, you have a really nice voice and all, but, like, he just wanted me to focus on other goals, like ask them questions or, you know, da, 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 mm-hmm. things like that. And I wish I had, it's like you said, coming back, you know mm-hmm. more, you have better answers. And I wish mm-hmm. that I just had the language to tell him and explain in the moment that this is helping them reach their goals because look mm-hmm. at them all sitting, not getting distracted, which was never yeah. possible before this day kind of yeah. thing. Where So like, there's a big discrepancy there of like the goals that you want the kids to meet. And again, the roadmap to how to get Mm -hmm. to these goals. So that's why I'm in here. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and it could be different. Exactly what you said. Like it can be different for every student and every student's needs are going to be different. And I've worked at schools before where you can't bring in books with superheroes or Disney characters. Like those books aren't allowed to be there. And, you know, then I look back to that situation with that student and that was the thing that drew him in. That was the thing that, you know, he was showing all of his friends, he was engaging with them socially. That was the thing that kind of brought them in or, you know, I had another student in a different classroom who had just moved there from like a whole other country. So he mostly just kind of played by himself for the most part, because that's a big transition um, for any child to go any person. (laughs) But especially like a young child, you know, coming to the United States from a whole other country and just having to assimilate, like it's hard. And so he played by himself a lot and he had his little cars and he would just sit on the floor and he would just go back and forth with his car all day and by himself for the most part. And, you know, people would be like, oh, don't worry about him. Like he's, you know, that's what he does. He does that all the time, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, we okay. worrying, girl. Yeah, I'm just like, we okay, but like he doesn't, he doesn't want to be like at the table during snack time. Like he doesn't want to engage with us in any other yeah. right now, except for just like with his cars. And so the next day I brought in like a, like a shaving cream activity, which I know is banned at some schools. <laughs> um, back in my day, we could do shaving cream. <laughs> and so I brought in the shaving cream and I think I mixed it with like brown paint. So I made like this foamy brown paint mess. I love messy yeah. play. I will do messy play all day, every day. Like I don't care how much I have to clean. I love messy play. So I just smattered this all over the table. And then I put the cars into the, you know, the mess. And I was like, oh, it's yeah. monster truck, right? And again, there's intentionality to it. I'm not just doing this for the sake of it. It's like, okay, I want them to work on fine motor. I want them to work on their eye hand, their hand eye coordination. I want them mm-hmm. to do there was intentionality about why I was doing it. But also another reason why I was doing it was to maybe encourage this child to see another avenue that we could use this toy, right? And because before he wouldn't even look up at it before it was just like, I don't, this doesn't really exist to me. I'm in my own yeah. world, this is the world that I'm here for. And that day that I put the cars in the foam, he was like, oh wait, this is fun. Are you <laughs> changing his world? <laughs> wait a minute, the cars can go on the table? And so then he's standing there and he's playing with the cars and he's starting to talk to the kids around him. And, you know, he's like, making eye contact with us. And that was a big shift and change than literally the day before. And so sometimes we just have to think of think outside the box a little bit to meet these needs of our students, because 
it's not going to be a one size fits all approach. And it's right. the story you just told, if you singing got them to engage in the story more, then you can work on asking them questions later. You can work on that like exactly. tomorrow, the day after, the next week, a month from now. Like if this is what accomplishes the goal of we are together right now and we are engaging, we're looking at the book, we are looking at you and we are here and our hands are to ourselves. <laughs> okay, cool. But two years more. old, okay, listen, right? that's a big right. deal. That's a big deal. And so sometimes our strategies might look different and that's okay. Like it's okay to think outside the box. And I think when I think about, you know, my teaching wins, like the moments that I just felt so proud of, like just being a teacher was when I myself was able to be creative. I saw an issue, I saw a problem and I said, okay, what I'm doing right now is not working. <laughs> Sometimes that's the first step, just acknowledging this plan A did not go the way I expected. <laughs> okay, let's rewind. Let's take a couple of steps back and let's connect with what is my intention? What is the thing that I want them to learn or do? And once I kind of get to that, I'm like, okay, so this is the thing that I want. How can we get there? in a different way. <laughs> How can we introduce that? Yeah. And sometimes you do, you start something, you try something and it works really well and they vibe with it and they're like, cool, yes, all of that. And sometimes we try something they're like, mm -mm, not that, absolutely not, no thank you. <laughs> Never gonna do that again. <laughs> Never again, and you're like, okay, learned that lesson, not that, cool. <laughs> but it is totally okay for us to look at it and, and reimagine education in a different way, which speaking of, <laughs> Segway. <laughs> um, I have one last question for you because I know we're coming up on time here. Um, I ask everyone is how do you reimagine education? Oof. Okay. Well, I think that in order to reimagine education, we have to redefine what is learning and what does that look like. And I think that so many people are just like learning tests. You have to jam it all into your head and then yeah, regurgitate it out, you know, all of that stuff. No, learning is neurons in your brain. We all have electricity in our brain and your neurons are making connections. You have electricity flying from point A to point B. And there are different ways to make those neurons go, mm -hmm. honestly. So it's like, what does that mean? um can we do presentations and tests can, like i i totally understand that changing the whole curriculum and like what i was talking about before like you know taking it to the people who make policies that, mm -hmm. that's a lot that's a whole lot and that's like a whole step three steps up <laughs> but even just us we can make those differences once we know what learning is mm -hmm. and what once we know what engages these kids to learn in their way you can reimagine education because it won't seem so hard. Yes. You know, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love the idea of reimagining what learning is and redefining that because you're, you're so right. Learning, it looks so different for everyone. And if we even just look at it from just the way, the different ways that people learn. So some people are the auditory or some people are the spatial learning, like, even looking at those, like people just learn things in such a different way. Yeah. And we can't just design an education system that caters to one type of learning and expect to see results and expect to see success in every person. Exactly. You know, and when we take that step back and we look at, okay, so what is learning? What are best practices that we know of now? And again, those best practices might change in a couple of years and a couple of decades, and that's okay. We, I would expect things to change, right? Like if things haven't exactly. changed from the 40s and the 60s and the 80s, our education system would be real sad. <laughs> it's already kind of in a sorry state, but like it, it would be real, it would be real terrifying. Agreed. It would. Agreed. And so following those best practices and following just the shifts and changes and more that we learn that is how we make significant and just keep making the great progress that, again, we both know that we can. We see the potential. We see what you can be. <laughs> yeah. Even taking it back to what you were saying in your older episodes, just when people see pre-K 
or daycare, they're like, oh, you're just playing. You're, you're just, you know, la la, having a good time. What you don't understand is that through play, you learn so much, like blocks. You can learn spatial awareness. You can learn about gravity. You learn math. You can learn about colors. You can learn, you know, you visit. You can learn so many things just with a set of toys that imagine if you allow them to explore more. And reimagining education in that way and reimagining learning. I think would also help people realize that what we do with the younger population, it's so much more than just playing mm-hmm. or, you know, it's easy. Mm-hmm. You only deserve $15 an hour because you're just being in the same room with them, but not really doing anything with them, which is false. <laughs> We're doing so much more <laughs> in that time. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel so just, empowered by this conversation and I just I feel so good I'm so amazed and I just I love the work that you do and I love these types of conversations they always challenge me to think about things in a different way and I just appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your wealth of knowledge (laughs) no I appreciate I also really enjoyed being here and I feel the same I was talking to my husband last night and even that was like a little spark. So thank you for that. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conscious Pathways. Don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast. You can be notified when a new episode drops. Please leave a rating or review. It really helps the podcast to reach more people just like you. And I'll see you next week for more conversations in education. Bye.